Revelation 14, verse 12. If you feel at liberty at home tonight, feel liberty to read out loud. And those of you here with us this evening, it, in spite of the Mass, if you feel at liberty to read loud tonight with us, read it loud with us, please. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in the sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city. And the blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. What about you? That makes your blood curdle a little bit, doesn't it? The mass numbers of people will die during the tribulation period because they've had an unrepentant heart. And the blood that would be shed from the wars and all that will happen, rising as high as to the horse's bridle. That's a lot of blood. It's a lot of bloodshed. The title tonight, I want you to go to verse 12. John uses a phrase that has become, is that has been incorporated into Western idiom. The patience of the saints. Where that phrase is used, probably used more by people in my generation than perhaps the younger generation, but it refers to someone of such incredible patience in the midst of a very, very difficult and trying time. And in this passage, we're going to see some encouragement and yet some instruction. Now, you and I can embody the patience of the saints. Father, bless your word once again. Breathe on me, O breath of heaven. I pray for the freshness of the Holy Spirit tonight. Take this passage and feed the souls of your good people. Save souls tonight. 
Even in the midst of this message, I pray you'd call out preachers and missionaries. I pray in the midst of this message, God, that someone who's ready to quit will re-enlist. I pray for prodigals that will come home. I pray for folks who are exasperated and worn out to find more grace. I pray for someone who's greatly in need of forgiveness to find forgiveness tonight. I pray for someone who's feeling rejected and abandoned to feel the love of God. I pray for someone tonight who's suffering immensely, and there are many. They'd find the rest that Jesus Christ, your Son, gives. I pray for someone this evening who's not saved, that they'd find Christ as their Savior and the eternal life that He promises. Bless the service, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we were in Revelation 13, and as much as I was looking forward to preaching it, honestly, when I finished preaching it, I didn't say this on the, on, on the video or anything like that or, or, or live stream, but when I was finished preaching, I thought, what a discouraging passage. You know, when you talk about, think about the beast and the mark of the beast, and you think of the, all the, the calamities on earth and the people who control and the people worshiping him. I mean, it's such a, you know, God had to put that there to show us the, the, the terribleness of the depravity of man. And as we transition now, we get to chapter 14. And as we look at these, these passages, and we look at what, everything we've been studying now for 13 chapters, now 14 chapters in Revelation, we see a lot of contrasts. We see opposites, contrasts, differences. Chapter 14 gives us a word of encouragement after a word of discouragement. I don't know about you, but after some periods of discouragement, you, you just want to be encouraged a little bit, amen? You know, you want to hear some good news. It's kind of like Paul and, and all those, those people, there were those 200-plus people with him on that ship, and they went many, many days. They didn't see the sun, the stars, and the moon, and thank God they got a word from God. But, you know, when, you're, when you've been under the shadow for a long time, there's just sometimes you just, humanly speaking, you need a word of encouragement. And chapter 14, even though in spite of what we read tonight, we're going to see some word of encouragement. But we see some contrasts. In chapter 13, we saw the dragon and the beast. In chapter 14, we see the lamb and the son of man. In chapter 13, we've seen the Antichrist. In chapter 14, we see the Lord Christ. All throughout Revelation, we see good and we see evil. We see the saved and the unsaved. We see those who are evangelizing and so winning. We see those who are not. We see heaven and we're going to see hell. We see repentance and we see rejection. We see the followers of the beast and we see the followers of the lamb. You know, something very interesting is we look at all these contrasts that just brings one thing to mind that I mentioned at least in the first service this morning. The Bible shows us things to remind us that we cannot be neutral on the things of God. We cannot sit and straddle the fence. We can't sit there and think everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be rosy. We are not to be a people of neutrality. Either you're for God or you're against God. Either you love the Lord or you don't love the Lord. Either you're hot or you're cold. You're either going to live for God or continue living in sin. You're either a true follower of Jesus Christ or you've decided you're going to be a follower of the world. I mean, I just say tonight that you cannot be neutral. There's no place for neutrality in the Christian life. I mean, that's why God raised up Elijah and he went to the prophets of Baal. And even though he was outnumbered, what was it, 800 to 1? He said, he stood before them and he says, he asked them, you know, what, what are you, who are you going to serve today? 
Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to follow? You're going to place your faith completely in Jesus Christ to be saved, or you're going to trust in yourself and spend eternity in hell. You cannot be neutral. John 14, 12, I mean, excuse me, Revelation 14, 12, as we saw here. Right in the middle of the chapter, John is addressing believers. People get saved in the tribulation. At this halfway mark, we're facing perhaps the most difficult, the longest three and a half years anyone's ever faced on earth. Time for me goes by very quickly. You know, it's kind of interesting. You get ready for the, you know, Sunday night's over. Man, you're already thinking about next week and all the messages and all the people you got to see and things. And by the time you get to Friday, you look back and you blink your eyes and you think, man, where, where was that Monday and Tuesday? What happened here? But for these people, it's going to be the most longest, grueling, most difficult, trying three and a half years anyone could ask, ask for here. And John stopped here by the leading of the Holy Spirit because in chapter 14 we see six angelic beings. Three messages, but six angelic appearances. And he stops right here in the middle to speak about what he calls the patience of the saints. Tonight, if you want to be victorious, and if you want to make it to the end, if you don't want to be a castaway, you don't want to fail, you don't want to be a disappointment to your family, you don't want to mess up, we better heed what he says here in verses 12 and 13. I want you to see three things tonight about the patience of the saints. I want you to see three things tonight about this passage of Scripture that will help you and I to receive good godly instruction, but to have a biblical faith that glorifies God. Number one, go back with me to verse one. Number one, I want you to see tonight the acknowledged assembly. We looked at this briefly a few weeks ago when we were looking at chapter seven. But I want to spend a little bit more time for just a moment here to look at the acknowledged assembly. The Bible says in verse 1, And I looked, and lo, God got it away, getting his eyes off the beast, getting his eyes off the mark of the beast, getting his eyes off of 666, getting his eyes off of, of just all the terrible things that would be on earth, the false prophet, the image of the beast, and God got his eyes back on Jesus. Can I tell you something tonight? When things are very bad and the difficult, way, the difficult times come and everything looks dark, there's a time you've got to get your eyes off the darkness and get your eyes off the negative and get your eyes off the evil and get your eyes off the wickedness and get your eyes on Christ. And he said, look, I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the, on the Mount Zion, and with them 144,000, having the fa his Father's name written in their foreheads. Now, 
I, I believe as he references Mount Zion, this is not the physical Mount Zion on earth. I believe he's literally talking about Mount Zion in heaven. We have a reference to that. If you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12 verses 22 to 24, it's a reference where Mount Zion is referring to heaven. And uh, many times when I'm talking with someone that wants a, a greater description of heaven, I like to take them over to Hebrews 12 before I take them over to Revelation 21 and 22 so they can get an understanding who is going to be in heaven. And he says here in verse 22 of Hebrews 12, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. That's kind of interesting. He calls it the heavenly Jerusalem even before John wrote John 20, uh, Revelation 21 and 24. He calls it the city of the living God. We saw that somewhere, I think, in Psalms 87 there. And he speaks about this innumerable company of angels. There's billions of angels that God has up in heaven. He says, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and, uh, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirit of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that sprinkled better things than that of Abel. Hey, this is, this is an, an acknowledged assembly. This is an assembly of people in heaven. But I want you to notice, we see Mount Zion is heaven, but I want you to notice, specifically, he's not talking about all the people here. He's talking about 144,000 men, 144,000 Jewish men, 12,000 out of 12 tribes of Israel that got saved during the tribulation. They're saved and they're flaming evangelists for God. God is acknowledging these soul winners. God's acknowledging these preacher missionaries. God's acknowledging them for their stand for Christ and for living for them. And notice in verses 1 to 5, we see the Lord's acknowledgement of this assembly. Let me just say this tonight. God acknowledges what we do. God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. I might forget you. Somebody else might forget you. But I want to promise you tonight, the Lord never forgets you. So notice this assembly, they're saved. Verse 3, he says, they were redeemed from the earth. In verse 4, he talks about the fact that they are redeemed, that they're redeemed from among men. That's significant when you consider that they are in the midst of people, some of which had heard the gospel before the rapture, but they have believed the lie, the spirit of delusion, and they will not get saved. And others who have become crusted and hardened over, 144,000, they are saved. They're born again. They're washed under the blood of the Lamb. This system of the earth had no control or no hold on them. They did not place their faith in the beast. They did not place their faith in his mark. They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Verse 5 makes a significant statement about these people that are redeemed. They're called the first fruits of God. And, and, or verse 4 says they're being the first fruits unto God. I'm not sure, but that might mean that, that they, were among the, they were the first ones to get saved during the tribulation period. That's very significant. All I'm trying to say tonight, this assembly is saved. Notice, secondly, this assembly is sealed. And God had to show this to John. In verse 18 of the previous chapter, he talks about the number 666 being the mark of the beast, either on the foreheads of people or on the right hands. And God says, well, I've got something to tell you. I've got something better. The devil has his mark, but God the Father has his mark too. Amen? And God the Father writes his name on our foreheads. Listen, I'm not, much in, I'm not much about tattooing. I'm not much about having my name written there. I'm not much about having apple pie or mom written across my arm there, okay? I, I, you know, I don't, I, if you want to do that, fine. But I'm telling you, I'm thankful tonight. My Father's name, my 
my heavenly Father's name is written on our foreheads. Amen. I'm thankful that he's written on our forehead that we belong to him. I'm thankful tonight that we are sealed by our heavenly Father. I'm thankful tonight, according to Ephesians 1.13, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are sealed by that Holy Spirit of promise. That seal indicates to all the foes of hell. It indicates to Satan. indicates even to the beast during the tribulation period. You belong to God. You are God's property. The devil can't have you. The devil won't have you because the Father's name is written in your forehead. They're sealed. They're secure. None of them is lost. Isn't it kind of interesting? God wants us to know 144,000, not 143,900. He said 144,000. Hey, don't you know tonight, none of God, anybody gets saved, none of them are lost. None of them loses their salvation. All of them are saved. If you're struggling tonight about your eternal security, praise God, tonight you are saved. The Bible says, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Thank God, he that has the Son is life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and this life is in his Son. John 5, 24, verily, verily, I send to thee, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, he, he says, hath everlasting life and shall not see condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now, not tomorrow, there is therefore now, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Thank God that they are sealed. Thank God that you're sealed. Thank God that we're sealed and going to heaven tonight. This group is saved. This group is sealed. This group is singing. Look at verses 2 and 3. And I heard a voice from heaven, the voice of many waters. And it's the voice of a great thunder. One preacher said, I imagine this sounding like the, the thundering waters of, of Niagara Falls. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. They have accompaniment. And he says, they sung as it were a new song before the throne. Now some contemporary group took that and named themselves New Song. This is not them, amen? I promise you it's not a contemporary song, Amen? Jiggle, wiggle, whatever it might be. It's none of that stuff. Amen? They sung as it were a new song before the throne. What is that new song? Well, he says, and before the four beasts. I mean, this, these group of evangelists sit up. This is a 144,000 men's choir. Amen? They're singing before the audience of heaven. The Bible says no man could learn that song but the 144,000. Well, my Bible tells me in Psalms 40, verse 3, listen to this. He's put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto our God, many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. Before I got saved, I loved all that worldly music that was out there. I grew up in that, I grew up in that 60s, 70s generation. I loved all that music. Kids in those days, they had the boom box. Remember the boom box? They play that thing loud. When I got saved, I didn't have any desire for that, man. I, I, loved, I loved the song, the hymns we're still singing today, amen. You get saved, you put a new song in your mouth. God said here, he put a new song inside of them. They had accompaniment. Their song filled all of heaven. It was holy to the Lord, the Bible says. It says, no man can learn it but them. God gave them a song. Listen, there's a joy in your heart. There's a desire to sing. You know, there's something about wanting to sing that when you hear a certain song. I was listening. It was a blessing today. I was kind of walking around a little bit as people were assembling all three services. And as the music was playing, some of our people had been in church for a long time. I was listening to people hum. 
I was with some people trying to carry a tune, amen? I was with some people trying to sing during that time. And I thought, you know, whether they're off tune or on tune, doesn't matter to me. I'm just glad they're singing, amen? I'm just glad they're trying to do the best they could. I was thankful to hear three services this morning of people singing with their mask on and all gagged up trying to make, make through that. And, and I watched masks going, they were sucking their air, air in, they're sucking their air out. I was watching masks go in and out, in and out, in and out. I thought somebody here is going to have a problem here and have a heart attack and we're going to be in trouble here. But they made it through all that. Hey, I want to tell you in heaven, we won't have masks. We're not going to be inhibited. There is no COVID-19 in heaven. Praise God. We're not going to be inhibited by the devil. The, de the devil's rock music won't be in heaven. The devil's rap music won't be in heaven. We're not going to have that eagle weagle what kind of stuff there. I thank God tonight we're not going to be worried about worship wars and worried about contemporary music. That The Lord is going to give us a new song, and we're going to be singing all of eternity in heaven. We're going to enjoy the Lord, enjoy the music of God. You say, Pastor, I can't sing now. You may not be able to sing now, but when you get to heaven, you'll be singing for all of eternity. Notice this acknowledged assembly separated. Look at verses 4 and 5. They were holy in their morals. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. It's amazing. You know, I just was trying to grasp my, get my mind on that. The tribulation period happens. There are 144,000 Jewish men, 12,000 out of each tribe of Israel. And the amazing thing is, unmarried, celibate, and virgins. And virgins. They could not be tempted. They were not given to lust. That doesn't mean that they, had, they were averse to women. It just means when they got saved, even before they got saved, they just were not living that kind of life. And after they got saved, the Lord put on their heart that they were called to preach. And they just decided to adopt 2 Timothy 2, verses 20-22, where it says, In a great house are vessels of gold and of silver and wood of earth, and some of honor, some of dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified in meat for the master's use, and prepared in every good work. I believe these, these, these 144,000 evangelists and these Jewish evangelists were, were undefiled before God. They were vessels of honor. Hey, what to God? And we've got some, Bible, we've got some great Bible college graduates in our, in, our, in our church right now and in this service, I want to tell you, what to God, man, wouldn't it be great if all the men that we knew that are in the ministry, if all of them stayed clean and kept their noses clean and kept their lives clean, wouldn't it be great that we wouldn't be hearing stories about moral failures and wouldn't it be great if we heard about stories tonight about men living for God, separate to the Lord Jesus Christ and realizing where there's no, where, where, there, where there are lives, where they're pure, there's power and where they're not pure, there's no power. And these 144,000 men, somehow they knew they didn't have a lot of time and they just just decided, you know, the time is short and we're going to live for God and we're going to win souls to Christ and we're not going to give ourselves over to where we're going to cheat on the side or do something on the side. They just decided to live pure life. Hey, listen, we live in a generation where people scoff at purity. They scoff at living for God. They scoff at just keeping your morals right and if there's something wrong with you if you haven't cheated on the side. I'm going to tell you something tonight. There is nothing wrong with you if you didn't, do, if you didn't cheat on the side. There's something right about you if you live for Jesus Christ today. They were holy in their morals. Notice, they were holy with their mouths. I don't know about you guys, but the stuff that's either said out of people's mouths or in social media, I mean, they need, they need a thorough borax washing, amen? Look at the Bible says in verse 5. And in their mouth there was found no guile. 
Out of the abundance of heart, the mouth speaketh. There's no deceit in their mouths. The Bible says they were without fault before the throne of God. I don't care what age we are. All of us can live like this. That's the benchmark, to be without fault before the throne of God. They're saved. They're sealed. They're singing. They're separated. Notice verse 4, they're sold out. These are they which follow the Lamb. What you notice is, whithersoever he goeth. You know, when we, we, we read Matthew 24 in correlation of Revelation 7 and, and about the spread of the gospel, and, and the Bible says the gospel will get to all the ends of the earth. I started looking and meditating a little bit on this, this verse right here. These 144,000 went wherever the Lord told them to go on planet earth to take the gospel. We've had the unfortunate, I call it the unfortunate announcements of several good missionaries because of political, safety, and other issues who've had to come back to states and could not minister any longer where they were at. In my heart, when I get letters like that, it's pretty grieved because there, are, there is a substantial investment the way we do missions today, there is a substantial investment that goes into a missionary. And if you look from dollars and cents, you really don't recover that perhaps for about 20 years. If you just look from a business standpoint. This group here, did you notice this? There are no mission boards. There's no mission sending agencies. They follow Jesus. They went with Jesus whithersoever he goes. That's why during the tribulation time, in three and a half years period of time, the gospel spreads the entire globe in a way that we have not done in two or in two thousand years. Even as you think about missions starting with Europe from Great Britain and missions from there and missions over the last hundred years in the United States, there's, there's nothing we have done that will compare to what they will do during that tribulation period. They follow Jesus whithersoever he goes. Take the uttermost parts here. I mean, take a map and look at some of the places that we're not even familiar with. I kind of like watching sometimes these cooking shows every now and then where the guy goes off to somewhere like New Zealand or somewhere else like that and they, you know, they, they, they want to touch these bizarre foods and things like that and they want to experience the culture in a unique way there. And, it, and it's kind of humorous in some ways. But what I really like about it, to be honest with you, beyond just watching the guy eat stuff I wouldn't eat, you know, but what I really like is watching just the, the landscape and the beauty of the, of the places they go to there. And I thought, you know, somewhere that somebody put on that man's heart and his mind to go to that country there. Can you imagine some, some of these 140? 44,000, they take a map of the world and they start studying and say, well, you know what? We just re realized there's nobody there. I'll go over there and preach the gospel. Another one says, I'll go over there and preach the gospel. Can you imagine if we sent out 144,000 of the best so many Christians around the world, assuming they have, they have the language down and all that, can you imagine what God could do? Do you imagine what God would do around this world? Can you imagine if just 144 soul winners from Heritage Baptist Church went out and did something like that for God? Can you imagine what God could do? I'm just saying, God saw a bunch here that said, they followed the Lamb with 
whithersoever he goes. Listen, they didn't run ahead of Jesus. They didn't suggest to Jesus. They went with Jesus. They followed him wherever he goes. I'm going to suggest to you tonight, if we want to make an impact in our area and we want to make an impact in missions, we need to follow the Lord whithersoever he goes. Secondly tonight, we see this acknowledged assembly. They're acknowledged in heaven. Secondly, in verses 6 to 20, we see the angelic announcements. John has been taken, given a glimpse of heaven. He's encouraged to see 144,000 soul-winning colleagues acknowledged by the Lord. He's rejoicing and celebrating their victories. And now the Lord turns his attention back to earth. Again, he's at that three and a half year mark. The beast has broken his covenant with Israel. Israel will be attacked. Israel is pictured as that woman we saw in Revelation 12. She's going to run for a refuge. The inhabitants of Israel are going to run for refuge somewhere. Someone said it might be in the area of Petra. At this three and a half year mark, we see the following statements. Look at verse 7. He says, The hour of his judgment is come. He said in verse 14, The Son of Man, he says, the Son of Man having on his head a golden crown and his hand a sharp sickle. Jesus sitting on the clouds. He's getting ready to do judgment. Verse 15, he says, for the time has come. Later on in verse 19, he says that, that God is thrusting, that the Lord and the angel have both thrusting their sickles into the earth to gather the vine of the earth and cast into the winepress of God. These six angelic announcements are saying to planet earth and the earth dwellers at that three and a half year mark, this is God's final call. It's going to come down hard. And so we see three angelic announcements, six angelic appearances, but three angelic announcements. Notice the first one in verse 5. The first one is a message of repentance. He said, Verse 6, excuse me. He said, and I saw another angel fly. This is the first angel. He's seen many angels, but in this narrative here, this is the first angel. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. Notice this, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of this judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Now if you, look at, if you look at how God has positioned the scripture, in Revelation 7 we read about these 144,000 evangelists. We see that many of them are martyred, if not all of them are martyred. Their blood is on the altar. Their blood is crying out, Lord, how long, how long before you revenge us? We get to chapter 14 here. The Lord is acknowledging them up in heaven. And would you notice this? God is doing something in the tribulation that is unique to the tribulation that he's not doing in our age. Right now, if you know your Bible, right now we are what we call the church age or the age of grace. Right now, we are the soul winners. We are the preachers of the gospel. You and I have been committed 
commission to take the gospel whether wherever God wants us to take it. God has given us his word. But you'll notice here in verses 6 and 7, at that three and a half year mark, because perhaps there's been a depleting and perhaps the death of all these 144,000, you notice God sends one angel. We're just told one angel. And this one angel is the main evangelist for the gospel message. Now, we don't really know how this angel is going to preach. We don't really know how he's going to manifest himself. We don't know if it's going to be a theophany of some kind. We don't really know. We're just told this angel has the everlasting gospel. He's going to preach the word of God. This angel sent by God. I mean, you're talking about, you know, Satan has his representatives. He has his beast and the false prophet. God now is sending someone supernatural too. He's sending an angel to preach the gospel. Notice, to everyone on the earth, to every nation, every kindred, every tongue, people. Why? Because God knows that the time is short, and for anyone to go to language school is going to take too long to get to everybody. There's still billions of people that are not saved. There's still billions of people that need the gospel. And so God sends an angel who's equipped and able to speak in every language, to go to every people, every tongue to bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now notice this. The message he's going to give is a message of repentance. The Bible says in verse 6, it's the everlasting gospel. I want you to take some time this week and study the word gospel. The descriptions of the gospel encourage our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us we have a glorious gospel. Revelation 14, verse 6, tells us it's an everlasting gospel. Thank God for the gospel. It's the gospel that saves. It's the gospel that touches lives. It's the gospel that is our emphasis. The gospel is what we preach. There's a description of the gospel. Notice in verse 6, the duration of the gospel. It's everlasting. It's never going to run out. It's never going to grow old. It's never going to grow obsolete. It's the duration. It's everlasting. It is not another gospel. Paul addresses that in Galatians 1. It is not another gospel, not heteros. He's talking about is a gospel that is the same gospel. It's the same gospel that saves souls. Notice the duty of the gospel is preached to everyone that dwells on the earth. It's just a reminder to us. We've got a limited period of time before Jesus comes. We've got to get the gospel to everybody. But notice the delivery of the gospel. When you read verse 7, you think, wait a minute, isn't the gospel the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? It is. Isn't that what he's going to preach? That's what he's going to preach. But you look at very carefully verse 7, do you notice this? Do you notice this? He's preaching to men and women, boys and girls who have a reprobate mind. Romans chapter 1. Profess themselves to be wise, they are fools. They have reprobate minds. And he's bringing them back to the following. Number one, the age of the great tribulation is people that do not fear God. Now we think it's bad now, but in the tribulation period, they don't have a fear of God. And he says, fear God and give glory to him. Everything he's advocating and preaching about the gospel is, is, is dealing with all the sin issues on planet earth at the time. They're not giving glory to God. They're worshiping the beast. They're worshiping his image. They're giving glory to God. And he says that the hour of judgment's come. He says, you don't have a lot of time. He says, worship him that made heaven and the earth and the sea and the, and the fountain of water. He says, he's taking them all back to Romans chapter 1. He's reminding them, this is, this is how the beast is deceiving you. He's saying, if you cannot acknowledge God as creator, if you cannot acknowledge God as sovereign. If you can cannot acknowledge God as the most high God, he says, even at that point there, you know, you're, you're not, you're not going to get saved. He says, you need to acknowledge, you need to fear God. And so this angel is preaching this message. It's an understandable message. It's an urgent message. He's preaching a message of repentance. Secondly, notice we see a second, we see a second message. 
verses 8 to 11, we see a message of wrath. <clears throat> now, it's a twofold message. Angel number two manifests himself in verse 8. There followed another angel, and he says, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon refers to the, the world system. It's intoxicating the whole world. The world system consisting of education, economics, medicine, politics, sociology, psychology, everyology you can think about. He's saying Babylon, which is the catch-all word, the catch-all name that encompasses, he said it's fallen. It's failed. It can't help anybody. And this angel comes to announce, no, for no other reason, he's announcing to the world population, Babylon has fallen, Babylon has failed, the world system has failed. It says that she's made all the nations of the world to drink of the wrath of, the wrath of God, but he said it's failed there. And then notice, if you would, we get to verses 9 and 11, we see a third angel. It's a message of wrath. And the third angel is announcing that everyone who received the mark of the beast is going to receive the wrath of God. You see, if you take the mark of the beast and you worship the beast, you have said there's no turning back. You have said you are the ultimate, you have made the statement through your action that is the ultimate in Christ and God rejection. And so he speaks out with a loud voice. If any man worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And notice this phraseology here. Notice the image here. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Not about you, but they're getting a foretaste on earth what it's going to be like in the lake of fire. We're getting a picture of what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah when he sent fire and brimstone down. He says they're going to be tormented. I mean, for the next three and a half years, everyone who has the mark of the beast is going to be tormented for their sin. Torment means exactly that. They're tormented. They have no rest. They're biting their tongue. In fact, the Bible mentions that here. They have no rest day and night. And just like the smoke that Abraham saw that was ascending from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah as he saw it burn. These people, the Bible says in verse 11, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. What a testimony. They're burning. A message of wrath. They have no rest. They're in perpetual pain. They're in agony. They're restless. They're hurting because they've received the mark of the beast. There's no rest. You get the tribulation times, a time of great depravity, the time of great desperation, a time of great turmoil. But there's a third message. There's a message of repentance, where there's an angel that preaches the everlasting gospel. There's a message of wrath against the, against the world system, 
against those who receive the mark of the beast. But notice in verses 14 to 20, we see a message of reaping. And this is where we pull it all together and we realize God has been long-suffering for a long time. Sometimes in our anxiousness, we say, Lord Jesus, come right now. But 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us, God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. God wants a few more to get saved. God wants a few more to come to Christ. God sees in some foreign country somebody that looks up into the stars and the skies of heaven who knows there's a God there, but they need someone to bring the gospel to them. God knows that there's somebody even here, in, right here in America, that we're in a godless society, they look up one night and they're so dejected and so hopeless, they think there's got to be a God out there somewhere. And God is longing that God would send a soul winner somewhere or a church planter there to bring the gospel to them. But now we're at that three and a half year mark. Things have gotten so bad and so wicked and so evil. God's long suffering is up. And we see the reaping. Verse 14, the precursor to the second coming of Christ. Jesus is not standing giving acknowledgement, He's not standing giving a welcome home. He's sitting on his throne as the son of man with a golden crown on his head. He's sitting on his throne with a sickle in his right hand, ready to reap on planet earth. He's ready to exercise judgment on planet earth. The judge of all the earth will do right. He will judge the nations in righteousness. And then notice in verse 15, we see angel number four. An angel realizes that our Lord is getting ready to, to, to thrust the sickle in. And the angel cries out to the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes out of the temple of heaven and he cries out, he says, he says, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. He says, the timing is ripe right now. The harvest is ready. Thrust in the sickle and start reaping, Jesus. And as that angel makes that announcement, angel number five appears. Angel number five also has a sickle. Jesus and a servant angel are going to both thrust in their sickle to reap on planet earth. And angel number six now follows. And angel number six tells, tells him, he comes out and he says there in verse, verse 18, and another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire. This is a mighty angel. And he said, he cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for the grapes are fully ripe. Twice we're told that the harvest on earth is ripe. It's ready for reaping there. And so the Bible says the angel, and I believe that includes the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 19, the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and he gathered the vine of the earth and cast into the great winepress of the wrath of God. It's kind of interesting. In the Old Testament, the vine is symbolic of Israel, the beloved of God. And in, in the New Testament, Jesus is the true vine who loves his church. But in the tribulation, the vine is the earth. And the vine on earth is a vineyard that is ripened to harvest. And it's the time has come, and it's been ripening, it's been ripening, it's been ripening. And now the time has come for harvest. And both Jesus and this angel are going to thrust in their sickle. They're going to thrust it in to reap on planet earth. And the Bible says as they reap, all of the grapes that they're going to gather, all of the people there, they'll be cast into the winepress of God outside the city of Jerusalem. And the, blood, the Bible tells us that the death and the carnage will be so great that the blood will rise to the bridles of the horses. 
It's reaping time. There's no more excuses. There's no more hiding. Harvest has come. Judgment has come. The time has come. The Bible says the hour of the judgment of God has come. Listen, at that three and a half year mark, it's saying there is no more time. God has come to do business on planet earth. That is great judgment. And John sees all this. The beast, the earth worshiping him, the earth worshiping Satan, the earth worshiping the the image of the beast. And God has his wine press ready for crushing and squeezing, defeating. God's wrath poured out without any mercy. You're not saved. You don't want to go through that. You're watching tonight by live stream. You're not saying, I'm telling you, it's coming. God has an appointed time. He will not turn the clock back. He will not change his mind. It's set in stone. It's set in scripture. If you're not saved, you need to get saved tonight. You've been putting off the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to get saved tonight. You need to realize that if, you've con- if you continue to put Jesus Christ off, the Bible describes you as having a reprobate mind. Listen, God is in the saving business. God has enough mercy and God has enough love. He can save you tonight. He can bring you from being a sinner to being saved. You can have the forgiveness of your sins and the Father's name written on your forehead. And you can know that heaven's your home tonight. We've seen an acknowledged assembly. We've seen the angelic announcements and messages of repentance and wrath and reaping. But here's the part I love the most. Look at verses 12 and 13. Would you notice the awaited assurance? God wanted us and God wanted those who are saved and have not, not dead yet. At that three and a half year mark, we're going to make it through the tribulation. It's going to be tough. But he wants us to get our focus as we close tonight on those who make it to the end. Of those who finish well. Of those who finish the race. Listen, we get tired. We get weary. The older you get, you get discouraged and disenchanted. You become cynical and you think, what's the use? Instead of being more on fire, your fire dwindles out. Instead of being more at church, you're less at church. And God wants every one of us to finish well. And God wants all of us to finish strong. And God wants all of us to finish running the race and crossing that finish line. But if we're going to make it, he said in verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here is what we're going to do. Here is what we have to do. Here is the secret to finishing well. I've heard a lot of messages during my Christian life of finishing well and finishing strong, but nobody's ever talked about what is required to finish well. What John tells us right here in verses 12 and 13. There's a word of encouragement no matter how old you are and where you're at, how you can finish well and how you can finish strong. Notice, first of all, as we look at the patience of the saints, first of all, we see the pattern of resilience. Here is the patience of the saints. Here's how you're going to make it. 
Here's how you're gonna, how, here's how you're gonna get through all the difficulties and, and tragedies of life and all the how are you gonna make it? Number one, he says here, the pattern resilience, he says, here is the patient of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. Number one, we must be obedient to God. We must fervently obey and keep the word of God. You say, well, that sounds so simple. It sounds so, so simple, but you know what the problem is? We're not doing it. And you think it's tough to live for Jesus now? Can you imagine then? You don't have the mark of the beast. You can't buy or sell. You can't get your medicines. You can't get the stipend from the government. I mean, I'm telling you, these who make it the end, they are Peter's and John's who said we must obey God rather than man. They're not going to bow to the image of Baal. Obey God. Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. I want to tell you tonight, I believe these people really love Jesus. Amen? I believe they really love the Lord. The resilience comes from obedience. Do you know obedience is not just an action? It's a discipline. It's a decision. I'm going to do right. That's why old Bob Jones Sr., when he founded Bob Jones College back in the day, he used to get up and preach. He, says, he, said, he used to say, do right until the stars fall. What he meant, stay obedient to God. But then he used a second phrase. Do you notice this in verse 12? A second component of the pattern for resilience. And I say a pattern because what they do in the tribulation is a pattern for us. The second thing he said, and they have the faith... Of Jesus. I was spending some time, I don't remember if it was yesterday or Friday. I was reading Matthew chapter 9, and my heart was just so encouraged. And I get encouraged about this about everyone in chapter 9. There's at least five incidences of the exercise of faith. This is the only verse of scripture that speaks about the faith of Jesus. And I believe what he's talking about here is the necessity of having robust endurance. Robust endurance. And I thought about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. That's the faith of Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, notice this, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. That's the faith of Jesus. Who for the joy that was set before him, listen to this phrase, endured the cross. Now, as bad as the tribulation is, the tribulation was not as bad, will not be as bad as Jesus enduring the cross. I want you to think about that for a minute, what he endured for you and me. Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, listen to this, despising the shame... That's the faith of Jesus. And then it says in verse 3, For consider him which endured such contradiction of sinners, lest you be weary and faint in your own minds. That's the faith of Jesus. The pattern for resilience is you've got to endure. The pattern for resilience, they may tear your back apart, but you're going to endure. 
And the faith of Jesus is everybody may walk out on you, but you're going to stay true. And the faith of Jesus is they may thrust a crown of thorns in your head, but you're going to go forward. And the thrust in the faith of Jesus says that no matter what the contradiction of sinners is, you're going to endure. You're going to stay with it. Listen, we have a pattern for resilience. They obey God. They keep his commandments. And they have the faith of Jesus Christ. But then we see a second thing. In verse 13, we see the promise of rest. And he writes here something in verse 13 that is very helpful to us. In this chapter, you notice very carefully, in fact, all the revelation when John says, I looked and I heard, I saw. He's paying careful attention. And in verse 13, he says specifically, I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, write. He said, I want you to write this down, John. I want you to write this down. And he wrote it down for us. Look at the phrase. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. You know what he's telling us? All of us. Let's be real. Let's be real. All of us have to some degree a fear of death. And if you don't have a fear of death about you, I promise you, you have a fear of death about somebody you love really closely. You do. You don't wake up in the morning thinking about death. You don't go to bed at night thinking about death. No. But he uses that word for blessed, makarios, that's used in many, many times in the Bible, which means happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that thirst hunger after rain. That's the same word, the word makarios. You know what he's telling us? Death is the last enemy. But death doesn't have a hold on us. Death is a defeated foe, amen? And he says, death is not the end. It's the beginning. Death is not a finality. It's our graduation. Death is not a loss. It's a gain. Death is when we close our eyes for the final time in this life. We open our eyes in eternity and the first face we see is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, listen, stop having a morbid idea of death. Stop looking at death as being having a hold on you. You're saved. Jesus bought you. Your Father's name is written on your forehead. You're going to heaven. Blessed are they, the dead in Christ, from henceforth. He says, which die in the Lord. Listen, death may be an enemy, but death is entrance into the presence of God. And Lord, to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord and we put off this mortal and we put on the immortal and we put off this corruptible and we put on an incorruptible and we're in the presence of our Lord. He's saying, blessed are they which die in the Lord. Let me tell you tonight, we don't know what our generation may be like. May, some of us may not make it into, before the rapture, but when the Lord takes us, let us be thankful tonight that death may be an enemy, but death is the graduation and entrance into the presence of our Savior. And then he said this, Yea, saith the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is agreeing with what was being said. This is the Godhead speaking to John. 
Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. Now in the previous verse, verses, he said about the ones who be tormented. There's no rest for the wicked. There's no rest for this world. But there's rest for those who are saved. We looked this morning at rest for the weary soul. God has a place of rest we can go to. God has a place of rest in His Word and in prayer and in His presence and capturing His sweetness and the essence of God in our life. Verse 13, he says, but eternal rest is being forever in the presence of God, that crown of glory, that diadem of beauty, being forever in the presence of God. You see, we can finish well because there's a pattern. And we can finish well because we have a promise. Don't get your eyes so stuck on all the troubles here that you forget on the long run at the end, the finish line you must cross and to finish successfully to the glory of God. God has a rest. God has a place of peace. God has a place of comfort. He gives us an awaited assurance. Let me remind you, be an expert on heaven. Know everything there is to know about heaven. and You'll have no fear of leaving this life. Know everything there is about being in the presence of God. And you'll have no fear about meeting the Lord one day. May God help us tonight to follow this pattern and to claim this promise and to live for Him.